morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. Hey, can we thank the worship team for leading us so well in our worship this morning? Such a blessing, as always, to be led by them. Um, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians 8. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 8 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles that would love to get a copy of God's Word uh, to you. If you don't own a Bible, consider it our gift for you. We'd love for you to take that and uh, bring that home, keep that with you. If you're new here, my name is Calvin. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. So glad that you're worshiping with us. I'd love to give you a special welcome. We count it an honor and privilege that you would come and hang out with us this weekend. So really hope you enjoy your time worshiping with us. And if you've been with our church over the past few months, you know that we are about halfway through our study of 1 Corinthians. And ever since Christmas, we've taken a chapter a week of the study of 1 Corinthians. And here's what I would tell you. When we decided as a, a church leadership to study this book, we knew this book would be challenging because Paul just gets right into practical issues and hits them head on. And for the past month, we've been talking about this idea that integrity matters and how you and I live is not disconnected from our relationship with God, but that the, in the way we live and in our obedience to the Lord, that that's a big part of our life and it matters. And it's been intense, hasn't it? Like, I've had to give this sex talk for two weeks in a row, right? And, um, you know, it's awesome. Hey, Cal, why'd you go into ministry? So I can give the sex talk to adults, obviously, right? No, it's, it's been challenging. But listen, God's word speaks to that thing. And, and how we honor the Lord with our bodies matters. We are not living on an island, but we are in relationship with God. And how we live matters. And if you were with us last week, you know that we had an all-in weekend. And we were like, listen, we are all in together as a church on living in bold obedience to God. And we uh, made a, a real significant push that says, listen, if you haven't taken the first step of obedience in baptism, now is the moment to do it. And we had baptisms across all services, all campuses. And by God's grace, we had 102 people come forward and get baptized just last weekend at our church. It's amazing. And... Um, I know there's some of you in here who got baptized last week. Please know that you're being prayed for. I hope you are encouraged. We've been praying for just your encouragement and protection that the enemy wouldn't get a foothold and try to discourage the, the step of obedience we made. But we've been pressing in hard on obedience. And we need to ask ourselves the question. We're about halfway through. And can we stop and ask ourselves an obvious question? Why are we pressing so hard into obedience? Why? Does it matter? Why are we trying to glorify God with our lives? Because here's the, what I know to be true. If I don't understand the why behind the what, I'm not going to be motivated to do the what. And if we don't understand why we're called to press into obedience, we're never going to be motivated to live a life that's obedient to God. I know some of you for sure um, shared this experience with me, but I remember when I was a junior in high school, um, I was in pre-calculus, and um, I'm not good at math. It was hard. You have to memorize all of these rules. There's all of these theorems and theories and, and, and calculations you have to make, and it was really frustrating for me. And I remember in a moment of frustration, about halfway through the year, I asked my teacher, why do I need to know this? What's the practical benefit of knowing pre-calculus? This seems completely isolated from the rest of my life. And the best answer he could give me was, well, some of you someday might become engineers. And I was like, look at me. I'm so obviously not going to be an engineer. That's not a good enough answer. And he was like, well, here's a better answer. I'm going to fail you if you, don't pass, you know, if you don't pass the test. I'm like, that's a good answer. I'll hang in there for a semester but then I'm out, right? Like if we don't understand the why, 
we're not going to be motivated for the what. And um, here's the truth. The truth is this is, can be especially confusing for us because we're a church and a people that love and celebrate and champion the gospel. And, and here's what the gospel says. That all of us are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. But that God in his love for us sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we should have lived but have failed to do so. And then he died the death that we deserve. And all of God's wrath for our sin was poured out on Jesus Christ. So we are not guilty of our sin anymore. But when God sees us, he sees us as perfect as his son. And there is no room for anger or malice in God's heart towards us. That our works gain us no favor with God. That there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. So the most righteous, holy, obedient person in the room and the most sinful, life-spinning, out-of-control person in the room, we both need Jesus equally and God loves both of us equally because our salvation and God's love for us is not dependent on our works, but on the perfect work of his son. Amen? And that's good news because that means no matter how you came in this room this morning, you have a God who knows you and who loves you more than you could possibly believe. Okay, but if that's true, then we have to ask the obvious question, why does obedience matter at all? If God's love is equal for me on my good days and my bad days, why would I make the hard steps and press into following God and into obedience? Because okay, so we have to understand this. This is so important to get. Stay with me right now. Even though God's love for us does not change dependent on our obedience, church, the way we experience God's love is absolutely tied to whether or not we are walking in obedience. God's love for us does not change, but we absolutely experience God's love in different ways depending on whether or not we are walking in obedience or walking in sin. James 4, 7 through 8 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Listen, church, God is not just a math equation. God is alive, and he's personal, and he's relational, and he wants to have a close relationship with us, but we forfeit that when we don't walk in obedience. If you have kids, you understand this, right? Uh, my son, Bo, he's five years old, and um, Bo loves sports more than any five-year-old I've ever met in my entire life. It is equally awesome and terrifying. All he cares about is sports. And Bo's favorite thing to do in the world is watch Manchester United soccer games with his dad. Manchester United is a soccer team in England, and he just loves these games. And he will just schedule his entire life around these games. He'll wake up, and I'll be like, hey, good morning, Bo. And he'll go, hey, Dad, guess what? And I'm like, what? He's like, only three more days till Manchester United plays. Like, he loves this so much. And then we'll watch the game, and oftentimes, uh, the games are in England, so they're way ahead of us, so I'll record them, and then I'll watch them when I come home from work. And he will sit for two hours locked in, and he wants to watch every second, and we'll have the games recorded, and I'll want to just skip halftime. He's like, no, I want to watch the halftime analysis. He knows every player. He knows every position. He has to know the team they're playing against. He loves it. And on um, this Wednesday, there was a Manchester United soccer game. So Tuesday night, when I tucked Bo into bed, the last thing he asked me is, Dad, did you remember to record the game? And I'm like, yeah, I recorded the game. We'll watch it when I get home from work tomorrow. 
And um, that Wednesday morning, I had an elders meeting. I had to be here at 6.30 in the morning. So I got up and left before the kids even woke up. And I got a call from Mary, my wife, at about 9. And she's like, hey, Cal, I just need to let you know, um, Bo was just... Um, a bad boy <laughs> this morning is the best way I can say it. He didn't listen. He got out of bed early. He ran his mouth at me. So I told him he doesn't get screens for the rest of the day. So I come home from work at five and Bo's just waiting for me at the door and his eyes are already, you know, filled with tears and he's given me that face and he's like, dad, I have to tell you something. And I'm like, mom already told me you, uh, you got grounded from the TV today, didn't you? Because you didn't listen. And he just starts bawling. And he goes, dad, are you mad at me? And I got down to his face and said, Bo, I love you, and you're my son, and I'm not mad at you, but Bo, it's more important for me to teach you that it's important to obey your mom and to listen to your mom than it is for me to watch this Manchester United soccer game with you right now. I wish we could watch that, but you have to learn this lesson, so we're not going to watch it today. Listen, did my love for my son change in that moment? Absolutely not. But Bo's experience of that love is not in doing what he wished he could do and what I wish I could do with him and watch the game. It was experienced in discipline. Like, listen, I've spent many hours with parents in tears over rebellious children and how those relationships are fractured. And here's what I'll tell you. Those parents love their kids fiercely. But the nature of their relationship has to change because of the rebellion and disobedience. I think a picture of this in the Bible is the story of the prodigal child, right? Like, listen, when the prodigal child took his father's inheritance and went off to a far country, did his father's love for him ever change? No, it didn't. And we know that because as soon as his son returned, his father ran out to meet him and put a robe on him and gave him his ring and said, praise God, my son is returned. Let's celebrate. But when the son was in rebellion, he was outside of his father's protection he didn't have relationship with his father, and all of that was broken. God's love for us does not change, but the way we experience that love absolutely changed. And that really, really helped us understand this. I have an illustration that I want you to look at. So I'm going to call Pastor Chris up, and I need him to help me with this. And um, Pastor Chris likes to think of himself as a coffee aficionado. Um, I would say coffee snob might be a, maybe a more fitting term. And um, so here's what I have. I have three cups of coffee here, and they're all different types of coffee. One cup is um, a Keurig coffee. And Keurig coffee, how many of you guys have drinking coffee from a Keurig machine? You know, you got those pods, and you put it in the machine, and, and then it pops out coffee. It's super fast. It's super convenient. It's super easy to use. The problem with Keurig is it tastes like garbage, all right? Keurig coffee is terrible. It's old, it's stale, it's sour. Who knows when those beans were, were roasted? Like, you just don't know. It could be like years. Um, it's bad quality coffee. One of them is Keurig. Another cup I have is Starbucks. And Starbucks, I would say, if Keurig on a scale of 1 to 10 is a 1, Starbucks is like a 4 or a 5. It, it, it's burnt, um, it's better than Keurig, but not much. And by the way, if you're offended at anything I'm saying right now, you're not mad at me, you're mad at the truth. Just understand <laughs> that. Um, I'm right, get over it. It is what it is. So I've got Starbucks here, which is like a, a, a four out of 10 or five, if we're being gracious. Um, and by the way, you need to understand, like five years ago, Chris and I thought we were so hip and cool because we drank Starbucks coffee. And then Taylor came on staff, and Taylor is actually a coffee snob, and um, he coffee shamed us into drinking madcap coffee. 
And the Madcap coffee is roasted in Grand Rapids, and this is like the 10 out of 10 best coffee. It's sweet, it's full of flavor. I would argue you've not truly ever drinking coffee until you've at least tried Madcap coffee. And I've got a cup here of Madcap. So um, here's what I would ask you, Chris. How many, cups are, how many cups of pour over coffee would you say you've had this year? About two a day. Two a day, so 365 days in a year. So about 7.30, if that's the math. Yeah. yeah, okay. How do you feel about saying that out loud in public? Not great, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so you think you're gonna be able to tell the, the three types of coffee? Oh, Do you yeah. think you know it? For sure. You're confident? Yep. All right, so here's number one. It's got a number one look, it's unmarked. Can I take the lid off? You can take the lid off. Really? You're smelling it? <laughs> I think that's the Keurig. That's the Keurig, okay, that's what you think. Okay, interesting. All right. Try coffee number two. I've got like a limited of time to preach this message. People have places to go. Okay, that's madcap. Sure, certain. Okay, let's put that there. Try number three. That's Starbucks. That's Starbucks? Okay, here's a question. How do you know it's Starbucks? What does Starbucks smell like, would you say? It smells like a cigarette butt. <laughs> okay. So here's the truth. Um, he got it, three for three. Perfect score for Chris. Give it up for Chris. And as a reward, I'll let you keep the Madcap coffee, or you can give it to someone that, you know special. Give it to a friend. Oh, you keep it. Great. Um, okay, hang with me for a second. That was fun and all. I want to create some tension in your hearts right now. Here's my fear. My fear that there are some of us in this room, maybe many of us, who have only ever experienced the Keurig brand of Christianity. So God's love for us does not change, but because there has been patterns of sin in our life or idols that we have refused to give up and trust the Lord with, but we continue to walk in patterns of sin or selfishness, God wants to draw near to us. He wants the best for us. He wants to give us all of himself but there's many of us who have never experienced the best that God would give us because we have settled for the Keurig brand of Christianity. And here's the truth. Some of you, this is all you believe that there ever is. So maybe you're even here this morning and you're exhausted and you're tired and God doesn't feel close. And you're like, why am I even trying anymore? And what I would say is, is it's not that Christianity has failed you. You've never given it a real shot. So what we're going to wrestle with today is, is what does it look like to press into obedience? And the why is, is so that we can experience fullness of life. Jesus says, in me you will have fullness of joy. Some of us have never experienced that. And the answer to that is pressing into faith, pressing into obedience. And it leads us to our big idea. It's this. It's that I will experience God's love most fully when I am not my first priority. I will experience God's love most fully when I am not my first priority. Matthew 22, 36 through 40 says, Teacher, which, uh, someone asked him, he said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And this, listen to what Jesus says. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to boil down all of what it means to follow God and to be a follower of Jesus, it's this. Love the Lord your God first with everything you have. And then the second is love your neighbor as yourself. You see how Jesus prioritizes our life right here? It's God, then others, then myself. All right, and look here. If we don't get this order right in our hearts, we're never going to experience the fullness of life and the sweetest relationship with God that he would have for us. We're never going to experience God's best if this is out of order. If we are first in our hearts, it's always going to be broken on some level. And so here's what 1 Corinthians 8 is. 1 Corinthians 8 is Paul's teaching us how this plays out in the church practically. And all 1 Corinthians 8 is, is it's a case study. There's a very specific issue going on in 1 Corinthians 8. And the issue is, is, what do you do with food that has been sacrificed to idols or meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And what would happen is, is in the Corinthian church, um, there was all of these temples, all of these gods and goddesses. And what they would do is, is they would offer food to these gods. And rather letting the food go to waste and go to spoil, they would then resell that food either in the temple or in the marketplace, and it would be on, like, on sale. It would be for a cheaper price because it was for the sacrifices, but it was still available to buy. And so what the Corinthian church is, is wrestling with is, is it okay for me to eat this food? Like, I love God, I understand that these idols are false, and I'm a follower of Jesus, but can I still shop on the sale section at Myers? Like, it'd be nice to still have this food. This is their question. What Paul's going to make an argument is it's bigger than just the food. The question is, is are we truly loving others is better than ourselves? So I'm going to read just the whole chapter in one fellow swoop, and then we'll come back and break it down. Look at verse 1 with me. It says this. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge, it puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, yet he does not know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as if really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who having knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if my food breaks, makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, so they're like, can I eat this meat? And Paul's like, it's not about what you know. It's about are you choosing 
to love others and care about others and not just think about yourself. And what Paul's going to do in this text is he's going to give us three relational concerns that you and I need to have for one another as we process how we live and the decisions we make. Here's the first relational concern. It's right in verse 1. It's really simple. It's this. Am I being loving? We need to ask ourselves, in what I'm doing, am I being loving? Look at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul is saying that it's not the focus on what you can do or what you do or don't know, but you need to ask the question, am I being loving to others? All right, look here. Can I ask you a question? How often does it go through your mind, how can I love and serve other people? Is that something that you think about? Like, I think sometimes we think we're selfless and that we love others, but we're so selfish, we can't even see it. So let's get super practical. Uh, on your way to church today, were you praying through, man, how can I love and serve and bless the people in my section at church today? Um, or were you like, man, no one better be sitting in my seat, right? I sit in this same seat every service. It has my name on it. I better not have to move. The parking lot better not be full. Man, I hate that awkward time where I've got to shake hands with people I don't know. Right? It's a selfish mindset. How can I love? How can I serve? How can I bless? When you serve in ministry, say it's children's ministry, it's like, oh man, there's an awesome opportunity to show these young hearts Jesus Christ in a limited opportunity that I have. Or is it like, man, I'm signed up, so I got to do it. What's our attitudes? Listen. This has been super convicting for me this week. Um, I am such a task-driven person that so often when I come to work, like it's, I'm only thinking about what do I have to get done and what's on my to-do list, what do I need to give my time to, what fires need to be put out, and I'll just get in this zone where I'm just working on stuff, and all of a sudden it'll be 3.30 in the afternoon, and I'll be like, man, I haven't even smiled at anyone yet today. I've only been thinking about what I have to do. And I shared this story last night. And one of our pastor's wives was like, that's so true. You're terrible at this. And I was like, thank you. It's so encouraging. But here's the thing. Listen, when I go to work, my only job is not to take care of what I need to take care of. It's how can I love and be a blessing and serve the people that God has given me to work with? We have to think outside of just ourselves. Do you do that? Can I ask you a question? Where do you need to hit the reset button in, in relationships in your life or in attitudes in your life? Who's difficult to love? And, and what would it look like for you to not be selfish in that relationship, but to really honestly wrestle with, am I being loving? We need to wrestle with this question. Here's the next one. And this next, we got to park on for a couple minutes. It's this. Will this cause a weaker brother to sin? Look at verse 8. Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So here's what Paul's saying. Paul's like, listen, it doesn't matter whether you eat the food or not. I don't care if you do. You're not sinning if you do. You're not sinning if you don't. But what you need to be careful about is, are you causing someone else, another brother and sister in Christ, to sin... By eating the meat. And here's what he's saying. He's like, listen, in the Corinthian church, there were so many new believers and believers that had come out of this idolatry. 
And what Paul's saying is, is you need to be careful because if you eat with someone who's new to the faith and all they know is this idolatry, you might be confusing them and making them believe that these idols are real if you eat in the temple or eat that food. It might cause them to stumble. Or even more so, it might tempt them to fall back into sin. Because you remember that so often the idolatry, especially in Corinth, was linked with sexual immorality. There was temples where you would go up and you would worship the goddess of love. And the way you would worship would be by having sex with a temple prostitute. So if that's what you're coming out of, and that's a big um, sin bend in your life, if all of a sudden you start eating the food that was associated with that worship, it might tempt you to go back to a former life and back into sin. And so Paul's saying, listen, we have to be careful that in what we do and how we enjoy our freedom in Christ, that we are thinking of others first and not causing others to sin. And so we need to take a moment here because I think this is one of the most misused and misunderstood passages in the Bible. And we need to take a second to understand what this looks like to apply rightly into our lives. And I would say the way that this most often applies in, in today's context is in alcohol. Almost every time I've heard this passage taught, it's applied to alcohol. Should Christians drink? Because here's what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that drinking alcohol is a sin. In fact, the Bible calls alcohol a gift from God to be enjoyed. But the Bible absolutely calls drunkenness a sin. And the Bible says do not be enslaved or addicted to anything. And, and so here's the truth. There are many of us in this room that we can enjoy alcohol responsibly and in a way that glorifies God. It doesn't lead us to, to getting drunk. We can turn uh, that switch off and um, we can drink it in a way that's not enslaving and, and we can do it in a healthy way. And there's many others of us in this room that because of family history or past addiction or even just conviction are like, I should not drink alcohol. And so how do we, with different convictions and honestly different realities when it comes to alcohol, love each other well? That this is the application. So I think in this text, a right way to apply it when it comes to alcohol is this. If you've got someone in your small group or you've got a friend that you know has a history of alcoholism in their background, whether they're family or them personally, or that's a weakness and that they don't drink, don't go hang out with them and have Bible study at a bar, right? Don't set them up for failure or with you're with them. Listen, it's not wrong for you to drink. But if you're drinking around them, it's going to tempt them to, to fall into sin. Give that thing up for a time out of love for your brother in Christ. It's not about you and what you can or can't do. It's how can you love and serve others. And this is why it gets tricky. Because I think there's two ditches that it's easy to fall into when thinking about making the weaker brother stumble. Here's the first ditch. And I think this is common. It's this. I just never think about other people. Right? And, and this is a ditch that's not good and it's not helpful. And this is a ditch that most often young people can fall into. Young people love to talk about their freedom in Christ. And, and I'm free to worship Christ how I want. And I'm free to live how I want. And, and there's grace. So I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I just don't think about other people. Listen, we have had 20s groups in our church um, ask us if it's okay if they have their 20s group, small group at a bar. And it's like, listen, I get that alcohol might not be a problem for you, but you don't know the past of the people who are joining your group. Let's have some wisdom, and not that it's wrong, but we need to really wrestle with, am I being loving, or am I just doing what I think is cool, or what I want to do? Um, this is something that I had to think a lot about when I was a youth pastor, 
right? Because the very nature of my job, and this is true for Taylor, is we have younger people who are newer to their faith that are not as mature and can't process like we can looking up to us. Right, so here's what that means. I was super careful about the music that I listened to around my high schoolers. It's not that I think that all music's wrong and there was for sure music that I would listen to privately or with my wife, but I wouldn't listen to it with high schoolers because I knew that that high schoolers would hear that I liked that band and then all of a sudden they would be like, hey, I want to go to that concert and mom and dad, I should be able to because Cal likes it. Like they're going to throw me under the bus for sure. So I primarily listen to worship music. I would watch certain movies with my wife or with adult friends that I wouldn't watch with my high schoolers. And it's not because I was ashamed or it's because I was hiding it. But I didn't want my weaker brothers and sisters in Christ to be tempted to stumble because they don't have the maturity to process what they're seeing like I might as someone significantly older than them. Okay, so the first ditch is I don't ever think of others. Here's the second ditch, and this is just as big of a problem. We can't fall into the ditch that this means that the most legalistic person always gets to win. That the most legalistic person always gets to win. The problem is this idea of don't make the weaker brother stumble. You can apply this and it can get insane really, really quick. Because what people love to do is they say, listen, it's not just what you know about, but you're responsible for not making the weaker brother or sister sin that you don't even know about or or you don't even know is there. Okay, so this is things that people have actually said to me. People have said, hey, Cal... Um, You should never be allowed to wear a tank top or shorts, or anyone should, out in public because you don't know who's in downtown Grand Haven, and by seeing your legs, you might cause them to stumble. It's true. First of all, my legs aren't that impressive. Second of all, like, that's insane. I can't control... Like, there's thousands of people in Grand Haven in the summer. I can't control what other people are thinking who I don't even know. That that's a chain of legalism that I'm not called to carry. I've had people say, um, you know what, Cal, you should never drink coffee. Because other people are absolutely addicted to coffee. And if you drink coffee, they're going to say, well, my pastor drinks coffee and it's okay to drink coffee. I'm like, yeah, that, that's a... Um, chain that you're putting on that that is just not appropriate. Um, I've had people tell me, um, you know what? Um, You should never post, no one should ever post pictures of their kids or family on social media because you don't know who's looking at your pictures and you might have someone who doesn't have a wife or who don't have kids and and you're causing them to covet and become depressed because they see your family. Like people can take this to insane levels and here's what Paul's saying. He's saying in the power that you have and what you know, Be loving to people. Don't set people up for failure. What he's not saying is is that you have to be imprisoned to what everyone or anyone might think at any given moment. If you're tracking with me, say I'm tracking. Here's the other thing that's important to know. Paul's talking about the new believer, the weaker brother. He's not talking about the angry legalistic brother. I remember one summer I preached at a conference ground. And uh, it was an evening service, and I had just preached. And right after the service, an older man pulled me aside. And the first thing he said to me was like, hey, I really liked your message, but... And I'm like, oh, no, here it comes. And uh, he didn't go to our church. Our church is so gracious and kind. I'm thankful for that. Um, And uh, he goes, (laughs) just throwing that out there. Um, He goes, listen, um, I'm really offended that you have a tattoo on your arm. Is it true you have a tattoo or is it fake? I'm like, no, it's not fake. I'm a grown man. Um, It's a real tattoo. And uh, he, and then, and listen, for 15 minutes, 
scolded me in front of everyone at the front of the church. And he was like, I just think it's so disappointing and you're trying to look too much like culture. You care too much about being cool. And I have, my, I have a son who, who I have a strained relationship with and he got a tattoo. And I wrote him this letter about how disappointed I was in him and just like hammering me. And I asked him the question, I'm like, listen, how long have you known the Lord? And he goes, I've known the Lord for 55 years. And I'm like, dude, you're not the weaker brother. If you really have known the Lord for 55 years, you should understand grace. You should understand freedom in Christ. You should understand that our outward appearance does not count for anything to the Lord. Like, you've been saved longer than I've been alive. People use this verse as a weapon to try to control people and to make people think like them. When the whole purpose is the exact opposite, that we would give ourselves for the benefit of other people. We need to ask ourselves the question, am I causing a weaker brother to sin? Then here's the third consideration. It's simply this. Am I being helpful? Am I being helpful? Flip over to chapter 10 for a second. Paul doubles back on this idea in chapter 10, verse 23. Here's what he says. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So we need to ask the question, just because it's okay to do, is it helping other people? Um, two years ago, my daughter Ashley, she's eight now, she was six at the time, um, she went through a, a, what I would only um, call spiritual warfare, she battled anxiety in, in a really deep and scary way. And my daughter, who's sick, she's always had a super sensitive heart towards the Lord. And all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, Ashley started hearing voices in her head. And these voices would tell her, God does not love you. You're a failure. Mom and dad do not love you. Um, you're, you're letting everyone down. And it would cause her to lock up because she was terrified of letting everyone down. And listen, it's scary as a parent when your daughter wakes up in the morning and tells you she has voices in her head telling her that she should run away because mom and dad aren't going to love her anymore. Like, this was real. And it got to the point to where I would say, hey, Ashley, how'd school go today? And she couldn't answer me. She would literally just lock up and freeze and start to cry. Because in her mind, what she was thinking was, well, if I say it was good, but it wasn't good because I forget something, that means I'm lying. And if I'm lying, that means mom and dad and God aren't going to love me anymore. Like, it was debilitating for a season. And our small group was praying for us. But here's what I would say. In that season, which was about six months... Mary and I hundreds of times had the conversation, how do we help Ashley? How do we help our girl? Because we love her. And so we memorized verses together and we said to her over and over and over again, Ashley, you are precious, you are honored, and you are loved. And there is nothing that can separate you from God's love and there is nothing that can separate you from mommy and daddy's love. And you will be loved on your best day and on your worst day. And listen, by God's grace, she has received supernatural freedom from this. And she is the most joyful, happy, loves the Lord, goofy, weird, comfortable in her own skin girl you'd ever want to meet right now. And, and it's amazing. God has freed her from this. But there was a season in crisis where it's like, we got to help our girl. That's the type of attitude we should have towards one another. How can I be helpful? How can I build you up? And, and here's my concern, right? Most of us in this room are in small groups, right? You're at like month seven now in small groups. Can I ask you a question? Um, you should know the people in your group. Are you trying to be helpful to them? You should know their strengths. You should know their weaknesses. You should know how their marriage is going or, or, or what they're tempted with sin. On. Like, are you going into group being like, how can I help? How can I bless? How can I build up? How can I confront sin if I need to for their good? Or is it just, what's this group going to do for me? 
We need to ask ourselves the question, am I being helpful? So the three relational considerations are, am I being loving? Am I causing the weaker brother to stumble? And am I being helpful? Now look at verse 31 in chapter 10, because I want to take a moment and look at three spiritual considerations we should also have when thinking about how we make decisions. Here's the first. It's what's my motivation? What's my motivation for what I'm doing? In verse 31, Paul lays this out so clearly. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So he's saying no matter what you do, the motivation should be to glorify God. And church, look here, I don't want you to check out on me right now. Here's why. We call ourselves a vertical church. And if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me say, we exist for the glory of God. So our marriages are about glorifying God. Our work is about glorifying God. Our, our parenting is about glorifying God. We exist for God's glory. And it's easy to come to church, to, to worship, to hear God's word and be like, yeah, I totally exist for God's glory. Right? But there's a saying in boxing that everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face, Right? Right, that as soon as the first punch flies, then the fight really begins because the plan goes out the window. And I think so often we come here on Sunday and we're encouraged to glorify God, but the punches come Sunday afternoon and into Monday. And we can so often fall right back into the same selfish patterns. Our only chance for truly living for the glory of God is we have to remember the gospel. And here's what the gospel says, that I deserve nothing, but I've received everything. That I have fallen short, but I have been forgiven. That I have been unloving, but I have been perfectly loved. And every moment in my life, good or bad, all it is is an opportunity to glorify God and to walk with my creator. On your good days, you've been given opportunities to rejoice in the Lord and to glorify God. And your bad moments are the best opportunities you can to say, God, I believe that you're good and I believe that you're faithful and I believe you've allowed this opportunity. So I'm going to choose trust and I'm going to glorify you. It's easy to say right here in this moment. It's hard to live out. Here's the second one, and this one's so important. We need to ask ourselves the question, am I becoming a slave? Am I becoming a slave to this thing? I need you to hop back to 1 Corinthians 6. We've looked at this passage a couple weeks ago, but we need to jump back and look at this again. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul says this, All things are lawful for me. Notice he says that again. Isn't that crazy? Like, hey, it's okay for me to do this thing. It's not wrong. All things are lawful for me, but listen. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So what Paul's saying is, listen, even though there's things that I can do and they're good things, I'm not going to let anything control me. And here's the truth. We know that idolatry is so often good things that become God things in our hearts. And even though they're not wrong and they're good, they can easily dominate us and control us. So we've been talking about alcohol. Let's talk about that again. Listen, you can be like, hey, I drink and I drink responsibly. I don't get drunk. Okay, but I would argue that if you can't unwind at the end of the day without a drink in your hand, you're becoming a slave. If you can't have a good time with your friends without alcohol being involved, you become a slave. Let's talk about some other examples, social media. Can I ask you a question? What would the analytics that you get once a week on your phone tell you about whether or not you're a slave to that device? Like, if I could be like, hey, let's, let's put everyone's analytics on how much they use their phone up on the screen, how many would be pumped about that, right? Not many of us. See, it's not a bad thing, but it can become a slave, our phones. Work can become a slave. 
Work is a good thing and we're called to work, and, 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 but it can dominate our lives. And even when we're home, we're not really home because we're thinking about work. It can become an identity thing. Um, things as simple as a hobby like golf or like video games. Like, listen, this can look different to everyone. Coffee. Here's something that's really, really hard to do, but it's going to be one of the best things you can do for your soul. The things you love most in this world, these earthly things, schedule out seasons in your, in your life and in your calendar where you fast from those things. Like you should have a day a week where you just put your phone away. Hey, I don't need this thing. This thing's not going to be a slave to me. Hey, um, some of you, it might be football. And you're like, listen, I love the NFL. It's my favorite thing. It's my three hours a week where it's really me time. And I watch all 16 games of the Detroit Lions every single year. And that's depressing even just to say because it's the Detroit Lions. But it's like, man, this is what I do. Okay, listen, look here. If that's you or, or if it's college football, maybe University of Michigan's a better example. It is good for your heart to take a weekend off and not watch the football game. You'll survive, I promise. Pour into your kids. Talk to your wife. But it's good just to show our hearts, hey, I'm not dominated by this. I don't need it to enjoy life because I have the Lord. All we need in this life to experience joy is our Savior, and we've been given it freely. We're not going to let other things rob us of that. And see, here's how I know how we work. What's going on in your mind right now is 20 different excuses why you shouldn't give that thing up. And if you're battling excuses in your head of why you need this thing and why everyone else can fast from stuff but I don't need to, it's probably the exact proof you need that you should be fasting from those things. All things are lawful. They're not wrong, but nothing's going to dominate me because I'm free in Christ. And then here's the third, and this one's so simple, it's this. Would Jesus do this? Would Jesus do this? Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Paul finishes his thought from chapter 10 in one simple sentence in verse 1. He says this. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul finishes this thought by saying, listen, as best as you can, follow me. Because as best as I can, I'm following Christ. Listen, we are followers of Jesus Christ. We are his disciples. And, and so you're like, man, what, is it, what does it mean to, to follow Jesus? It's simple. How did Jesus prioritize his life? First, he loved God with everything he had, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. There wasn't a moment where he was walking out of step, out of obedience with God. It was his priority. And then second, Jesus loved others as greater than himself. When he was teaching and he, he was exhausted, he said, have the little kids come to me. Let, let me spend time with them. Let me love them. He would be in a crowd of people and someone would just pull at his robe and he would stop and he would pay attention to the one person in the crowd no one else would pay attention to. And he would heal and he would pray and he would spend time with And here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Look here. Jesus had a ton of fun while he was doing ministry. He hung out with friends. He was at parties. He had dinners with people. It did not cost Jesus any joy at all to love God and to love others first. In fact, I would argue he experienced more joy on this earth than all of us in this room combined could ever dream of. But it's because he knew that fullness of joy found, is found when we experience God's best, the sweetest relationship with him, and that's found in obedience 
So here's what, how I want to close. I want to close by reading you a passage from Isaiah 55. It says this. It's on the screen. You don't need to turn there. And I want to plead with you right now. I want to engage your heart as best as I can. Listen to what God's word asks us. He says, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear to me. Hear that your soul may live. Listen, when I hear God say that to us, I hear a God who wants the best for us. He is taking nothing away from us when he calls us to walk in obedience. He is only giving us life to its fullest. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In John 4, Jesus enters a town in Samaria and he goes to a well to get a drink and there's a woman there who's an outcast in her society because of her sin. And Jesus says, hey, will you give me a drink? And the woman says, why are you even talking to me, teacher? I'm a woman from Samaria. I have no right to even stand in your presence. And what I love about that is that's so often how I feel. God, I'm so unworthy to even stand in your presence. And here's what Jesus says. He says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and you knew who, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There's some of us in this room this morning that you're here, but you're not really here. Your heart is far from the Lord. And I would just ask you, how much longer are you going to run after the things that do not satisfy? How much longer are you going to believe the lie that the things of this earth that are temporary provide a greater joy than what your creator has wired you for? And that is to know and walk with your creator. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to sit in this moment for a second because there's some of us in this room that have never truly run to your Father in trust and faith. Maybe you're new to Christianity and this is all new for you. Maybe you've grown up in the church, but there's never truly been a point where you said, listen, I'm going to put all of my trust and all of my faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to believe that there is life and fullness of joy only found in walking in obedience with my Creator. If that's you, let this be the moment. What are we waiting for? What are we running for? Right? And there's other of us in this room who we are um, walking with the Lord and we've had a relationship with Christ, but it's gone stale. And so what I'm going to ask right now is that the Holy Spirit would just come move in power in our hearts. You see, the way God works is when his word is proclaimed, his spirit convicts our hearts. And so I'm not shying away from it in this moment because this is a good thing. That convicting of the spirit in your heart, hey, this is what I need to give up. This is what I need to refocus on. This is what I need to, to reorder in my life. That's God's love drawing you towards the best. 
So can we just sit in a moment and plead with the Lord, God, I want more of you. I want to experience your power in your life and your joy in new and powerful ways. God, where are you calling me to press into obedience? Where are you calling me to press into forgiveness? Where are you calling me to, to press into love? Dear Heavenly Father, would you do what only you can do right now? Would your spirit change our hearts? God, I confess that I have no power to do anything. But your word is alive and it is powerful and it is sharper than a two-edged sword and your spirit is alive and it's moving in this place. And God, I pray for people right now who are wrestling with the decision, do I really commit my life to Jesus Christ? Would you show them your love? Would you show them your grace? Would you make their hearts alive right now? And then for us who, who just need to be refocused, who, who, who need to really believe that you are good and that you want the best for us, would you break down the walls that we've built? Would we experience your love in new ways? You're so good. You're so kind. We don't deserve any of this, yet you give it so freely. And it's in your beautiful son's name we pray, Jesus. Amen.